Well, I want to invite your attention once again to the Word of God. And uh, I don't normally normally do this, but uh, I want to take you back to the 62nd Psalm that I read uh, a little bit earlier. I want to read this Psalm uh, portion again this morning uh, before we turn to the New Testament. And we'll read a couple of verses from the New Testament that is... Uh, my primary text for the message this morning. But uh, this psalm, as David is writing this psalm, uh, it speaks of the same thing, I believe. It's really telling us the same thing that uh, we're going to read in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, just a couple of verses we'll read there uh, for my actual primary text this morning. But... Uh, I would encourage you to listen very closely uh, once again to uh, what David writes here. And I know that as David is writing this psalm and perhaps singing this psalm, uh, he's thinking more about what we see in verses 3 and 4 than he is about the salvation of the soul from sin. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the picture is there. And the truth is there. Uh, The same God who saves from physical danger and harm is the God who saves from spiritual danger and harm. Uh, And so listen to the words of of this psalm again, beginning with verse 1 of Psalm 62. For God alone... let Let me read that again. For God alone... My soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Let me just say before we read those two verses in Acts chapter 4 this morning, uh, listen to David. Listen to him when he says, For God alone, for God alone, only God can do what David is talking about here. And so he concludes, or at least I conclude with verse 8 in our reading here, trust in Him. Trust in Him. And I might add, trust in Him alone, in God alone. O people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Now, if you would look with me in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, here in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4. I want to read just two verses. Verses 11 and 12. And you listen closely if you would. And see if uh, if 
what we read here is not in reference and not telling us and teaching the same truth that we just read from Psalm 62. Verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation in no one else. No other name. No other name. Well, let's pray, can we? Our Father, as we bow before you now, we do so to acknowledge how great is our need. Lord, our need right now is to hear you speak, to hear you speak your word to our hearts. And, oh, Lord, use it in our lives to accomplish your purpose in us for your honor and for your glory, but, oh, God, for our eternal good, our eternal well-being as well. We are needy people, Lord, a poor and needy people, as the psalmist would say. I'm a poor man, Lord. I, I need you. And, Lord, we all need you. So make your presence known here this morning. Speak to our hearts. Magnify your name Exalt your Son and the Savior from sin, the only Savior from sin, the Lord Jesus. We let, Lord, we, we, we trust that your will will be done. Now, in these next few moments as we spend time considering your word together, use it in our hearts and in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the subject of salvation... Uh, is a very central theme uh, throughout God's Word. If you've read much of God's Word, uh, you would have recognized that, that uh, often we run on to the subject of salvation in the Word of God. And, and we have looked, actually, uh, well, three weeks ago and uh, a couple of Sundays, we've been considering some things about salvation. And we're going to come back to that, obviously, again this morning. Uh, and I would entitle the message this morning simply this, The Single Source and Surety of Salvation. The Single Source and Surety of Salvation. Uh, when the psalmist wrote those words that God laid upon his heart for that 62nd psalm, when he says, for in God alone uh, he put his trust, and in God alone was his salvation, uh, I'm convinced in my heart and in my mind that, that the psalmist uh, was in recognition of the fact that God, though he be the only God there is, he is a triune God. There is three persons in the Godhead, and I think David recognized that as uh, do all of those who uh, come to know Him and trust in Him. And we'll, we'll consider a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later. But in, in talking about the subject of salvation, uh, I think we dealt with this a little bit uh, in one of the messages before, but we need to understand what it is. And I fear greatly that there are 
multitudes today, many even who attend church on a regular basis, who really don't understand what salvation really is. And so let's begin by just kind of considering that briefly this morning. Uh, what salvation is. Salvation is actually the act of saving, is it not? When you think about the subject of salvation, uh, you're thinking about something being saved. Uh, And uh, to save, uh, I I looked it up actually in Webster's uh, uh, Dictionary and uh, lots of definitions for the word save there. But I came away with these ideas. To save is to rescue from danger. To rescue from danger. And I'm sure that uh, you uh, have heard many times how someone has been saved from some particular danger or another. I I was thinking about this and I thought of the firemen so many times that that go into a burning building to rescue or to save someone from danger. Uh, Or I I thought also about... uh, uh, well, maybe the, the swimming pool that people often go to or, or going to the beach and how that uh, both in the, around the swimming pool or, and on the beach there are lifeguards stationed in various places in, in order to, when they see somebody having difficulty, perhaps about to drown, are, are able to uh, go to them and save them from that particular danger. And so to rescue from danger, that's what it means to save. But also it means to to deliver from ruin. To save is to deliver from ruin. Uh, I was thinking about this and and thinking about somebody having a priceless uh, piece of furniture, perhaps an antique uh, that... uh, uh, has been handed down for years to through the family or whatever, and it's uh, and it's left sitting outside uh, in the weather, and someone comes along and sees that piece of furniture sitting outside and and delivers it from the ruin <laughs> that it might experience if it were left out there in the elements, uh, and so to save is to deliver from ruin, but it's also to preserve from destruction, to preserve from destruction. Uh, In the last several months, we've uh, heard how that uh, some of the statues of uh, uh, generals and various ones from our history uh, have been actually torn down. Uh, And yet there have been a few that have been preserved from destruction because somebody uh, stood up and, and said enough is enough. And so uh, to save is to preserve from destruction as well. Uh, I want us to consider some things about salvation, uh, if we could this morning. Uh, and the things that I want us to consider are found on that handout, actually, that I gave you about three weeks ago. And, and I'm sure... Uh, as I indicated, you might want to take this and, uh, and consider these things and do some searching in the Scripture yourself for them. I'm sure you all uh, did your homework. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we, I, I handed out that, this piece of paper. It's got the promise of salvation, the picture of salvation, the person of salvation, 
the plan of salvation, the purpose of salvation, the power of salvation, and the progression of salvation. Uh, Things that we need to consider about salvation and that I hope you already have to some degree and that we will perhaps in more detail take a look at here this morning. And, and I, the order that I put those in uh, uh, is the order they came to my heart and my mind as I was thinking about this. But I actually want to begin not with the first one this morning. I want to begin with the third one. I want to, to begin by considering the person of salvation. The person of salvation. For this is what our text in Acts chapter 4 is really dealing with, is it not? Let me read that to you again. This Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. And you recall perhaps uh, of what uh, uh, is actually being spoken of here. Uh, you know, we read that uh, Jesus uh, is the eternal word of God and he became flesh and dwelt among us. But when he came what was the response and what was the reaction to those that he came to, to his own people, the Jews? They received him not. They rejected him, did they not? And this is exactly what Peter is talking about here in Acts chapter 4 when he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so I want us to consider, first of all, the person of salvation. Because if we do not understand what the Scripture says about the person of salvation, then all of these other things, the, the, the promise of salvation and uh, the, uh, the pictures of salvation... Uh, the, the plan of salvation, the purpose of salvation, all of these, they have no meaning. If you take the person of salvation out of these other things, then they're meaningless. They really have nothing to say to us. And so we must begin with the person of salvation. And then as we go back and look at some of these others, I think we'll see how central he is in all of them and how essential he is in each one of these things we'll consider about salvation. And so I want us to do that, if I could this morning, consider the person of salvation. And there's this passage of Scripture that I want to read to you before we actually even begin to look more closely at the person of salvation. And this passage of Scripture is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. So I want to ask you if you would like, go ahead and turn there with me for just a few moments. I want to read a few verses from Hebrews Chapter 7, beginning with verse 19. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. Here we read, For the law made nothing perfect. Uh, But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Talking about the priesthood here and uh, how that Jesus himself is compared to Melchizedek who was a priest but not of the tribe of Levi. He was a different, different, uh, different type of priest, was he not? 
And that's who it's talking about here, comparing Jesus to him. And it says, who in, uh, in verse 16, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement uh, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, the King James there says this makes Jesus the surety of a better covenant. Uh, there, by the title to the message this morning, the single source and surety of salvation. Jesus is the guarantor, the surety of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death uh, from continuing in office, but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, Innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. <laughs> oh, what a difference in this priesthood of this one after the order of Melchizedek who lives forever who didn't have to go on time after time after time offering up sacrifice for sin because he offered up himself the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all. Now then, let's look more closely at the person of salvation this morning, if we can. And uh, in order to do this, look at the person of salvation I'd like for us to consider, first of all, a verse found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This, you'll recall, is uh, uh, that portion of Matthew where the angel comes to Joseph, who is espoused or engaged, if you will, to Mary, uh, to be joined to Mary in, in marriage. And, and yet they are not married at this time. And the angel comes to Joseph who uh, would have put Mary uh, away uh, to not bring embarrassment upon her. He would have privately put her away because of the fact that she was going to have a, a child out of wedlock, if you will. Uh, but the angel comes to Joseph and, and he tells him that Mary's going to have a child. And this child is to be the Son of God. And His name is to be called Jesus. Verse 21 of Matthew 1. Uh, she will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save 
his people from their sins. His name shall be called Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, or Yeshua, Yeshua. Uh, and uh, it actually means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. Isn't that what the psalmist was telling us? God is our salvation. God is our salvation. There are so many scriptures that talk about this one who is the person of salvation. Uh, perhaps you recall in the second chapter of Luke, uh, a man by the name of Simeon, uh, whom the Lord had uh, appeared to and told him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's uh, Christ. In verse 26 of Luke chapter 2, we read about this. And uh, uh, there was a man in Jerusalem, verse 25, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He saw the person of salvation, didn't he? He saw the person of salvation, the Lord Jesus. Uh, that one born to Mary in the manger so many years ago. Uh, our text tells us this morning that this one named Jesus, uh, that there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only this name, the person of God's Son, the Lord Jesus. Oh, the Scripture has so much to say about him. We could go back to Isaiah chapter 53 where we read there the prophecy of the suffering servant. Uh, how that uh, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the penalty for our sin. Uh, we read the prophet Isaiah speaking of even before it happened, long before it happened. He bore our iniquities. The Lord laid on Him all of our iniquities. For the chastisement of our peace, you know, He suffered. He suffered on our behalf. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The person of salvation. God laid on Him our sin. He suffered in our place. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Here Peter says, He Himself bore our sins. He, the person, Jesus, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Oh, we could go back to the book of Hebrews in the ninth chapter, and we could yet once again read of the person of salvation. Verse 28 of Hebrews chapter 9 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him, to consummate uh, their salvation. Oh, the person of salvation. The person of salvation. How central and how important it is that we see the person of salvation. And how that in every aspect of salvation that we consider, He is central. He is essential and must be seen and recognized. Well, let's go back now to these other things and let's consider the promise of salvation if we could for just a moment. The promise of salvation. Well, I thought it would be good for us to look at what I believe is the first uh, promise of salvation that we find in the Scripture. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis actually for this. Genesis chapter 3. In verse 15, you'll recall that uh, Adam and Eve had sinned there in the Garden of Eden and uh, they were actually uh, trying to hide from the presence of God and God, uh, uh, well, <laughs> they couldn't be hidden from Him. And so God came and first of all, He, uh, he uh, said, Adam, what have you done? <laughs> well, Adam says, you know, the woman you gave me, He, he wanted to cast the blame on, on the woman. The woman you gave me, she took of the fruit and, and, and I did eat. And so God then speaks to Eve and He says, What have you done? And she says, uh, uh, The serpent deceived me in verse 13 of chapter 3 of Genesis. The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord said to the serpent. And so the first promise of salvation is actually spoken to who? Listen closely. To the serpent himself. Oh, to him is promised this salvation that is so central in all of God's Word. And so the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, the King James says between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that word bruise there, I didn't take time to look this up, but I think if I recall, this same word uh, has at different times uh, a stronger meaning than it does at other times. When he says, he shall bruise your head, uh, it's, it's much stronger than it is in the last line there, and you shall bruise his heel. The first instance, it almost could be translated, He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise His heel. This is the first promise of salvation. Uh, we, could, uh, we could go to uh, the uh, third chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, where uh, we find the, Luke's account of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, and His genealogy is traced all the way back uh, to Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. 
and so the seed, the offspring that is spoken of in Genesis chapter 3 can be seen and followed all the way through this ancestry of Jesus, all the way up to Jesus Christ himself as being the one actually promised all the way back in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. We come to the New Testament. And the first instance of the promise of salvation that we find in the New Testament, we already read just a few moments ago, didn't we? Where the angel spoke to Joseph there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. The promise of salvation. But you see how central Jesus is in the promise of salvation? And we could look at so many promises throughout the Word of God of salvation, couldn't we? All the way through the Old Testament, coming on into the New Testament, as we've already seen in Matthew there, chapter 1 and verse 21. So many promises of salvation, but in each and every one of them, the person of salvation is crucial, essential, pertinent, of greatest importance. And so we'll move on to the picture of salvation the picture of salvation now then i i said the picture of salvation but once again as with the promise of salvation there's so many so many pictures of salvation in in the scripture the old testament actually is just really picture after picture after picture is it not of salvation. Let me share with you just one that I'm sure you are familiar with, and it's found in the 14th chapter of the book of Exodus. The 14th chapter of the book of Exodus. We'll not take time to read this entire account, but this is the account of God's people being delivered from bondage or actually literally slavery to the Egyptians in the land of Egypt. Uh, They were sorely pressed and persecuted as slaves there in Egypt. And uh, God sent them a deliverer. He sent Moses, didn't he? Uh, Sent Moses with a message for Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go. And uh, he refused time and time again to do so. And so many plagues came upon uh, uh, the the land of Egypt and the Egyptians. God seeking to convince them to let his people go. And finally, the last one was the firstborn of all of uh, in, in the land of Egypt was to perish and to die when the death angel came through the land. And the only ones that would be preserved were those who uh, were in the house with the blood sprinkled on the doorpost, the blood of a, a lamb that was shed. Uh, and when God uh, in the death angel passed over, he saw the blood and passed over them. And so uh, we do find that uh, Pharaoh finally decided to let the children of Israel go. And so they began to leave Egypt. And on their way, they, in their travels, they came to the Red Sea, if you recall. And you read about this in Exodus chapter 14. They came to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea was before them, and, and they had, had to get across And they looked back behind him, and Pharaoh had changed his mind, decided not to let them go. And he came with his chariots and his armies uh, to once again take them back into Egypt and and make them slaves once again. And Moses stood before the children of Israel, and he held up the rod of God, and he said to the children of Israel, Behold, 
the salvation of the Lord. Remember what happened? The Red Sea parted. And the children of Israel were able to walk across that sea on dry ground. The, the great number of them, perhaps in excess of a million of them with their livestock and, and all, crossed over that Red Sea on dry ground. And no more did they get to the other side than Pharaoh and his army came after them and God closed the sea back upon them and destroyed them all. They drowned. They drowned. We see there a picture of salvation, do we not? And there are so many, so many pictures of salvation in the Old Testament. But let's go on now. And, and if you would realize that there was a Savior there, wasn't there? Typified in Moses uh, being the one to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. But uh, let's go on and let's consider the plan of salvation, if we could here this morning. The plan of salvation. Uh, I uh, I would ask you to bear with me a little bit here this morning because I want to read you something that I ran on to that uh, I I felt did a good job of explaining uh, the plan of salvation and when all of this took place. There's a great deal of confusion, I believe, in our day and time uh, when men speak of the plan of salvation. Uh, but uh, this uh, written by R.C. Sproul... Uh, several years ago, and I believe first uh, uh, printed in Table Talk magazine back in, uh, uh, I believe it was June of 2020. But listen to what Sproul says. He says, The Bible has much to say about God's activity before the world was made. The Bible speaks often of God's eternal counsel, of His plan of salvation, and the like. It is a matter of theological urgency that Christians not think of God as a ruler who ad-libs his dominion of the universe. God does not make it up as he goes along, nor must he be viewed as a bumbling administrator who is so inept in his planning that his blueprint for redemption must be endlessly subject to revision according to the actions of men. The God of Scripture has no plan B or plan C. His plan A is from everlasting to everlasting. It is both perfect and unchangeable as it rests on God's eternal character, which is, among other things, holy, omniscient, and immutable. God's eternal plan is not revised because of, because of moral imperfections within it that must be purified. His plan was not corrected or amended because he gained new knowledge that he lacked at the beginning. God's plan never changes because he never changes. And because perfection admits to no degrees and cannot be improved upon. The covenant of redemption or salvation is intimately concerned with God's eternal plan. It is called a covenant inasmuch as the plan involves two or more parties. This is not a covenant between God and humans. It is a covenant among the persons of the Godhead, the triune Godhead, specifically, though, between the Father and the Son. Now, the phrase covenant of redemption or covenant of salvation does not explicitly occur in Scripture, but the concept is heralded throughout. Central to the message of Jesus 
is the declaration that he was sent into the world by the Father and his mission was not given him at his baptism or at the, in, the, at, in the manger. He had it before his incarnation in the eternal past. If we were to read in Philippians chapter 2, and let me just go ahead and read this to you quickly if I can. Uh, here we get a glimpse, Sproul says, of this. He says, let this mind be in you, as Paul writes. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of men. He being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sproul went on to say that this passage reveals many things. It speaks of the willingness of the Son to undertake a mission of redemption at the behest of the Father. That Jesus was about doing the will of the Father is testified throughout His life. As a young boy in the temple, He reminded His earthly parents that He must be about His Father's business. His meat and drink, as we read about as Jesus was speaking to the disciples at the well of Sychar, His meat and drink was to do the will of His Father. It was zeal to His Father's house that we read about where we find Jesus cleansing the temple. Cleansing the temple of the, the money changers there. It was, it was zeal for the Father's house that consumed Him. Repeatedly He declared that He spoke not on His own authority, but on the authority of the One who sent Him. Jesus is the primary missionary. As the word suggests, a missionary is one who is sent. The eternal word did not decide on his own to come to this planet for its redemption. He was sent here in the plan of salvation. The Son of God comes to do the Father's bidding. The point of the covenant of redemption is that the Son comes willingly. He is not coerced by the Father to relinquish his glory and be subjected to humiliation. Rather, he willingly made himself of no reputation. The Father did not strip the Son of his eternal glory, but the Son agreed to lay it aside temporarily for the sake of salvation. God's plan of salvation. Oh, how we need to understand that the plan of salvation was... A, the, the origin of it is in eternity past in the eternal counsel of the Godhead. What then is to be that which makes that which God planned a reality in my life and in your life? Well, we read in many places in the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, but one example is found in Acts, the 16th chapter. If you recall... Uh, there, the Philippian jailer, when Paul and Silas were in jail, uh, due to some things that were happened, having heard Paul and Silas at midnight singing and worshiping the Lord together, 
the, the jailer came to them and he said, what must I do to be saved? In other words, how can God's plan of, of salvation become a reality in my life? What must I do to be saved? You remember what Paul and Silas told him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the person of salvation. His person and His work. Who He is and what God sent Him into this world to do. And the fact that He not only came as God ordained, but He did exactly what God sent Him to do. Believe it. Believe it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, we find it more explicitly uh, laid out for us in the 10th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, don't we? Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 8. You're familiar with this where the Scripture tells us But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. That's the plan. That's the plan. And it's implemented in our hearts and lives when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved through faith. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Oh, that's the plan. That's the plan of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Very quickly now, the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation. Again, seems to be a great deal of confusion as to what the purpose of salvation really is. But the Scripture makes it very clear. Let's look first of all in, in the ninth chapter of Romans. If you still have your Bible open to Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 10, just go back one chapter to the ninth chapter uh, of the book of Romans, beginning with verse 15. We read here, For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Now he's going to tell us about the purpose of salvation here, so listen closely. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have right over the clay to make one 
make a, out of the same lump one vessel for honor, you, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of, fitted, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now listen, this is the purpose of salvation. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for His glory. Oh, the, the purpose of salvation is the glory of God. In the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we see it repeatedly uh, made reference to what the purpose of God is in salvation. And you're familiar with that first chapter of Ephesians, <laughs> precious portion of Scripture that it is. But listen, if you would, uh, here in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise of of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. We see it again in verse 12. So that we who first were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. We see it again in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? To the praise of His glory. This is the purpose of salvation. Oh, we're the beneficiaries to a great degree, but the overall purpose, the, the main purpose of salvation is the glory of God. The glory of God. Every saved sinner, every sinner who is touched by the grace of God, transformed by the grace of God, becomes a pedestal upon which the glory of God is displayed. The purpose of salvation is God's glory. It's God's glory. Well, very quickly, two more things. The power of salvation. The power of salvation. Romans chapter 1 tells us where Paul writes in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? It's God's word, isn't it? The gospel is God's word. And God's word is the power of God unto salvation. Paul speaks of it uh, back in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Where he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross, the gospel, the message of Christ, His work, His person, who He is and what He's done upon the cross for poor lost sinners. It's folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing in their sin, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oh, we could read on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 all the way down through verse 24 and we would see that it is 
the, the, the preaching of God's word, that which God has chosen to be uh, the means of saving sinners is the preaching of God's word, which is the power of God unto salvation. The word of God, the word of God. And once again, we see how central the Lord Jesus is in this and how that there would be no power of God unto salvation at all were it not for the Lord Jesus. Remember how the, the Apostle John began his account of the gospel in chapter 1 of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 14 tells us what? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God is the power of God unto salvation, and that Word is none other than the person of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus. Well, very quickly, let's bring this to a conclusion by considering the progression of salvation, the progression of salvation. I know of no better place to take you than the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 8. Oh, I... I I, want, I was going to begin with verse 29, but I can't look at these verses without beginning with verse 28, where we read, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now then listen to the progression of salvation. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those he foreknew, that's those that he set his love upon before the foundation of the world. And for them he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This could not be were it not for the person of salvation, the Lord Jesus. How are we justified? In whom were we chosen? In whom uh, does God's predestination uh, of being conformed to His image rest? But in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. All, all of it comes to Christ, doesn't it? All of it comes to the Son of God. That one who, a little over 2,000 years ago now, came into this world as the Father ordained that He would. The eternal Word of God becoming flesh. The eternal Word of God taking upon the form of man in order that He what? might save poor lost sinners like you and I. Oh, salvation. Salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. What does our text in Acts tell us? There's no other name. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Let me conclude, if I could this morning, by sharing with you just a few more portions of Scripture 
that make this so very, very clear to us. Let's begin, if we could, with 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Here we read that He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's all in Christ, according to what Paul told Timothy there. Let's go back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 through the first part of verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Gave Himself as a ransom for all. Let's look now back in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy and verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Of whom I am chief. Going back to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. Here Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath, He's speaking to Christians here and to believers. Those whom God set His love upon before the foundation of the world. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. One more verse and we'll close. We read in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, in regard to this salvation, the apostle writes there, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How are you going to escape? There is no escape. There is no escape for those who neglect salvation, for those who do not, do not heed what God says about the person of salvation, who He is, and what is done. There is no escape for those who do not believe in who He is and what is done. His person and His work to secure the salvation of sinners. The source, the single source of salvation is God. Is God. And the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, becomes the surety or the guarantor that salvation will come to those who God has loved for all of eternity past. Oh, may we see, may we see the person of salvation, the Lord Jesus. May we believe in Him and trust in Him with all of our hearts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again, can we?